This is Your Own Voice, the podcast about gender, experience, and perspective. I'm your host, Amy Breslow. Each week, I invite a different guest to share their personal experiences regarding gender and gender issues. This podcast is recorded at my kitchen table and may contain sounds of life from my home and neighborhood in Washington, D.C. Episode 2. My guest today is Rose, who identifies herself as a cisgendered queer woman and prefers the pronouns she and her. So, Rose, welcome to my home. Welcome to my kitchen table. Thanks so much, Amy. I am really happy to have you here. Um, We're just going to have a a bit of a talk tonight uh, about your experiences with gender in the United States. And I want to start by asking you, when did you first become aware of the, let's say, the differences in gender roles? Hmm. I think there are a couple of different points where I... I realized at different different ways the gender roles. I'd say the first one was when my brother was born. I'm the oldest of five kids, and he's the fourth. And so he was born when I was nine. And all of a sudden, we were opened up into this world of boys. And, and I was certainly taught to think that it was a world of boys, not not just that he was different, but that he was a boy as compared to the four girls. Um, and... That included um, things like it was okay for him to have a temper tantrum or things like my grandfather all of a sudden being very interested in trying to name him because he would carry on the family name. Did you ask your parents about any of this? Or you just observed it yourself? I, I, it's only in looking back that I realized that I was observing this. It was just something that I absorbed, I would say. Mm-hmm. I know that you, you you mentioned to me earlier that um, that you've studied gender uh, at the university or college level, and I am wondering what in your personal life led you to decide to do gender studies. I think that um, there's a little bit of a long story going into that because so I chose to go to um, a pretty conservative Catholic university in the Midwest. I grew up in California, so that was kind of a big change. Um, and honestly, something that I realized um, in hindsight is that I chose to go to that university because um, I hoped to get over my feelings for other women um, and that I hoped I would find a nice a nice man and we'd have a lovely Catholic marriage and lots of kids. And when I got through my first year of college, things were, those things were starting to fall away. Um, for example, I was in my first lesbian relationship by the end of college. And so I went away in my second year, I studied abroad in France. And that was really a time I was 18 years old when I arrived. 9-11 happened t- two weeks after I arrived. It was, it, there was a lot of tumultuousness and change. And I was speaking another language every single day. And so I think that there was a lot of self-development and a lot of um, self-definition going on. And while I was there, I um, one of my classmates was told me that she was going to take on a minor in gender studies. And I was really interested in that, but I was scared by it. I was scared that people would, if I took that, people would know that I was queer. Um, and being at a Catholic university, it was, that was not a, 
an easy thing to contemplate and certainly not something I was ready to be public about. But this was my friend who was perfectly, or very, was straight, had no, had no um, personal um, interest in, um, in other women. She was just, and I, and so I figured, okay, well then maybe it's just regular people who do a gender studies minor. Maybe I should just take gender 101 and see what I think. Um, and so that, that really opened it up. And I'll admit when I got into the classes, there were a lot of people who were queer. Um, but there wasn't an assumption that everyone there had to be queer in order to be interested in gender. It was cross-sectional. It was, um, we didn't study, um, something that was really interesting about that particular, um, curriculum is you didn't just study gender. You also studied race and cross-cultural issues because all of it can be, can be incorporated when you're looking at the world through a gendered lens. Thank you. I, I, I I'm curious, this was a one-year class. This was a, a, an ongoing study. Was there something in particular during that time that you said, I want to pursue X in my lifetime to bring this forward? Or did you really see it as I'm just using this for my own person, my own self? It, um, definitely the former. It became, certainly it was, um, it gave me a lens into myself and it gave me, um, vocabulary that I didn't have before in order to express my interests and values. But even more than that, I took that first gender studies class and, it eventually became my second major. It was, wasn't just a single class. It wasn't a minor. It was my second major. And I wrote a thesis, um, for gender studies and it infused all the rest of my, um, my studies as well. My, my major was political science and I wrote about the politics of veiling in Iran. So it was the intersection of religion and politics and gender. And, um, I did a European studies minor and I wrote my thesis on, um, uh, I wrote a piece of fiction about a, a woman who was trafficked from um, Eastern Europe into France. These these pieces of where I can look, I could look at my other subjects and through this gendered lens, using this vocabulary and these concepts that I had um, that I encountered through doing gender studies, um, and that also influenced my choice of graduate courses. Um, I I received a Rotary Foundation scholarship, and so I knew I was headed to um, to the University of Edinburgh. And I specifically chose the University of Edinburgh because it not only was international politics, but there were several courses on gender and politics that were offered as part of the master's. Um, and as compared to other universities like the University of York, that, that became part of what I wanted to do was look at this intersection of gender and politics and religion. Thank you. Mm -hmm. What issues of gender do you find yourself confronting in the workplace? Or are there no gender issues? Is it just a non-issue for you? There have been, um, in various workplaces I've been in, there have been different um, issues. I worked abroad in West Africa for three years, and uh, there it was quite, it was difficult to be a single woman. It was um the, the teachers that I worked with were all men. And there was an assumption that I, um, that my interaction with men would have to be sexual in some way. 
because just because I was a woman and they were men, our interaction had to have some sexual connotation to it. Um, there were other issues uh, in, in later workplaces, simple things like comments on women's clothing, um, usually by men. Or You're talking now in the United States. No, this is still overseas, overseas but uh-huh. no longer in West Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, so working with Americans, but overseas, I encountered bosses who would comment on my clothing or comment on whether my hair was messy, um, things that they did not say to the, the male colleagues that I was uh, with. And, um, and, and things that were a little bit more insidious and worrying, like managers inviting young women and um, staff to their, to their residences to work on their um, performance evaluations late in the evening. And especially this, this kind of aspect of power um, that was also gendered. And I would say in more recent workplace experiences, it's I've had an interesting experience because in my current workplace, the, the majority of the managerial structure is, is women. And that has created a very different gendered um, approach to the workplace. For example, um, there is a lot of unwritten rules that encourage people to balance their work and life, in particular, um, people who are ch- um, parents of young children. For example, um, on snow days, when you're required to telework, the, un- the unwritten rule is check your email a couple times, but we know you probably can't sit down at your computer for eight hours today because your kids are also at home. And that, I, I say that's gendered because I, I have only ever seen those policies in place when there are women in, in the managerial position. And even though they benefit both men and women. That's really interesting. Actually, you just preempted my next question was, do you think fathers are taking advantage of that? Or do you think the attitude is the same towards fathers who might be staying home with their kids? I'm sure that in some workplaces, it would be very different. I would say that in this, in my current workplace, um, fathers are expected to take advantage of that same, um, that same permission. um, For example, we have a couple people going out on uh, parental leave and a newly arrived baby. And there's a woman and a man, and each of them are taking parental leave. Um, and some of that includes some leave without pay because that's what they were able to organize with the manager because there is this gendered understanding of the need to, um, the need to support family life. That's lovely. That's, that's, I, I, that is the first example that I've heard from somebody talking about how, a woman manager, or let's let's just not make it be about mm-hmm. a person with that sort of lens is really making conscious decisions to improve work life balance. I'm I'm glad for you that you've yeah. got that in your office. I would I would hope that male managers would also consider these um, these policies. I just haven't personally experienced it. Understood. Yeah. Understood. What do you think is possible today in the current environment or just given the current conversation in the United States about gender that wasn't possible even a few years ago? I mean, that is, there is so much more possible. I have to say um, the, the vocabulary that people have 
um, uh, around things like sexual orientation, around uh, gender orientation, this vocabulary was not was not available to me in high school, certainly. Um, in fact, one of my first jobs after grad school was was going out to high schools and talking about um, and teaching LGBT um, anti-bullying. And so a lot of that was talking about terms and describing, okay, what does it, what does it actually mean for a person to be trans? And, and these are concepts that are new and they are really, they're infusing the, um, the average person's imagination with images of that they can actually, that are more tangible. They, they never, they didn't have access to these ideas before. If someone who had grown up in a small place had not, had not left that small place might've just believed that, that trans people did not exist because they never encountered them. But because of the rise of social media, because of the introduction of these terms into popular culture, television shows, they are even, even people who are, have less access are starting to hear them. And I think that that is, that is offering really wonderful opportunities to convert that vocabulary into understanding. It's funny, I want to ask a question about something you said earlier, mm-hmm. but before I do, I love that theme of converting into understanding. Mm-hmm. I, I'm curious if you have any examples of things that you saw either by your own you know, personal going out and working with uh, younger people or things that you heard other colleagues do um, or other other colleagues told you about from that interaction or from those classes? I think... I can't think of a specific example right now. Um, I do... Oh, yes, I can, actually. So um, something I, a couple years ago, I took uh, Arabic classes. And one of the things that was, that I faced that was quite difficult is I wanted to be able to talk about my family and the fact that I have a female partner. Um, But those, that vocabulary was not accessible to me. Or in Arabic, the translation of gay was actually pedophile. And so I, I approached one of my language instructors and said, hey, can you, can you help me find the words that can describe my family in a way that people understand it um, and that, that, so, the, so the terms aren't so specialized that an average person would understand. And so together we created um, some some basic words. And then what was amazing is that she then brought together all of the, all of the language instructors that were teaching Arabic uh, and everyone got together in a single room and talked about these terms. Um, and this was an opportunity. There was a, a panel of people who were LGBT and had the opportunity to tell their stories. And so we were not only introducing words, but also putting faces and stories to those words, which meant that these teachers um, who maybe had not known that they knew a, a gay person or a trans person before, now they, they knew a, an appropriate word that was respectful and they knew a person with a story. Um, and so there are certainly still some people who were not very comfortable with the concept, but it existed. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you. That, that's a beautiful example. Mm. And it's, it's funny, going to the, let's say, other end of the spectrum, the beginning of your response, you talked about you were um, working with kids about anti-bullying. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, were you bullied or have you been bullied for being a lesbian? I think there have, like, um, I think growing up, when I first realized that I was attracted to women, and I generally identify as queer because I am attracted to men as well. I see. But I have a monogamous partner who is a woman, and so it's, it can be easiest to use lesbian as well. So I don't object either way. Um, is, is queer another word for bi? I've never really known what the exact definition of queer is. That's a great question. Um, queer is is generally anyone who's kind of outside of the heterosexual um, norm. Okay. So it could mean bi, it could mean pansexual. It could mean also that, um, it could also have, uh, gender identity, identity, um, implications. I don't know what pansexual means. What is that? Pansexual is, um, people who are attracted to anyone of any gender. So in, um, gender or, um, gender identity. So people who are attracted to men, women, people who do not identify with either, either by, um, pole. Understood. Yeah. Understood. Thank you. I, I really, I, I just learned something. I'm happy. You know, we were just talking about vocabulary, how important it is. Happy to keep introducing it. No, it wasn't something I heard until, mm, until about 10 years ago. So yeah. yeah. I want to come back to bullying, but I will confess for me as a straight cisgendered woman, mm-hmm. I sometimes get very confused. Is it LGBT? Is it LGBTI? Is it LGBTIQ? I've Mm -hmm. heard people have very strong opinions about the gamut, and I don't know what to use. I don't know what to say at times. So I try to just follow Mm -hmm. other – I defer to the person who is is representing – Mm-hmm. X group or fill in the blank group. Anyway, just, uh, yeah, no, that's, I, and I would say it never gets particularly easier. Um, I tend to use LGBT. It's mostly because that's how that was the terminology used as I was growing up. But I, I do think there are more inclusive LGBTI, LGBTQ, um, options. And I tend to, uh, sometimes queer is, is a good short for that because it, to me, or at least the way that I define it, it can mean both um, both sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, that someone is just is queering the norm; they are outside of what is considered the norm. Thank you. That that actually makes a lot of sense. However, some people are offended by the word yes, queer. Yes, I've and met. So yeah, it is. Yeah, it's certainly you. You just have to call people what they would like to be called. But sometimes you have to have that awkward conversation first. Okay. So what would you like to be called? <laughs> what pronouns do you use? What? Yeah. No, thank you. I, mm-hmm. I, I appreciate that too. But going back, so since you are identifying mm-hmm. as a queer woman, have you been bullied for being queer? There have been a couple times when, um, when I've been with my girlfriend and have gotten shouts on the street. Um, there was one time I even, I was kissing a girlfriend in a club that I thought was a friendly club, even though it wasn't, it wasn't. LGBT specific and a guy threw his beer at me. Um, and that it made me feel very unsafe and we left pretty quickly afterward. Um, but I would say other than that, I luckily have felt, 
uh, pretty safe. Um, it helps that I am cisgendered and that I present as, as pretty feminine. Um, uh, and you're white in that and matters. And I'm white, so, yeah. absolutely. You're white, middle class. class yeah. mm-hmm. And I'd say that I there are times that I have been very worried about people's reactions to me, in particular my family. There's um, just the some of the faith of my family uh, is not it doesn't is not very friendly to LGBT issues, and so coming out was a long process for me. Um, but I have been lucky that I have not actually received a lot of bullying. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm really happy to hear that. I, I you know just going back to your family, you're married uh, mm-hmm. to a woman, a lovely woman. Mm-hmm. Did your whole family come to your wedding? Uh, so what we chose to do actually was have a very small wedding where it was only my immediate family and, um, and an equal number of her fa- family and friends. Cause she has a smaller family than I do. So we had 14 people. Oh, that's nice. Um, but part of the calculation was that we didn't think that all of our family would be happy to be at our wedding. Um, there were a lot of different factors that went into it, but it was, but that decision was at least partly based on concern. We didn't, we didn't want someone who wasn't there with their whole heart. Understood. Yeah. I, and I, I applaud you. (laughs) No, I mean, it's, uh, why would we pay for their dinner? Exactly. Not there to be excited for us. The wedding industrial complex. (laughs) Do you have any goals or dreams that you have chosen not to pursue. And if that's the case, do you think gender played a role in any of your decisions? Um, that's an interesting question for me. I, I had, a, I did have a dream at one point that I was going to be a diplomat in the foreign service, travel the world, move around to different places every two or three years. And I chose not to pursue that because I wanted to be with my wife. And I I bring this up as a gendered thing because it was it was a decision I made that was very tough because I did not want to be the kind of woman um in air quotes who um made decisions based on a love interest. But I had to look at what my priorities were and what my what my values were and it wasn't that I was um, head over heels for someone and just wanted to give up everything. I looked at um, the trade-offs between the two of us when we were when I was contemplating this um, this career, and realized that she would end up giving up so much more mm-hmm. than I would if I gave up just this one particular aspect of my dream. Um, and I think that I think that that is a gendered decision because especially when I, when I, when I speak to people who are in heterosexual couples, the decision about where to move, about what jobs to take, um, too often is a decision made by one partner over the other. And I, um, and it's often the male partner over the female. Um, not always. I think that's certainly changing with my generation. Um, but you know, my dad moved out to California. My mom was not working and that was not, it was his job. That's why they moved there. Um, and it's hard. I think those kinds of decisions about what compromises and what sacrifices to make, um, can have a gendered aspect to it. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. 
Have you ever had a time when you wanted to do something, but either thought, oh, I can't do it. Like, I'd, I'd love to do this particular thing, mm-hmm. but I just can't. Or I'd love to do this particular thing, but the consequences if I took this action would be so great, I'm not willing, I'm not willing to take the risk. I'm not willing to suffer the consequences. Mm-hmm. And particularly on a gender... I, well, well it, I, I, I'm asking it as an open question okay. and wondering if gender plays an aspect. But before we go mm-hmm. to the gendered piece, just asking it in general. Um, I, I, let me put it this way. I think that it is, it, it's a challenging question. So first, just think, has this ever happened to you? Mm-hmm. And then we can see if there's a gendered aspect yeah. to it. I, I mean, the thing that comes to mind first is um, that I only that I didn't apply to any Ivy League schools when I was coming out of high school, which seems such a silly, it was ages ago. I mean, I'm coming up on my 20 year reunion uh, for high school, but I, that was definitely something that I made a choice not to take the risk of rejection. I only applied to schools that I knew would accept me. Um, so, so that's, it's interesting. Do you think that there is a gendered piece to that decision or that dynamic? Yes, I think that's a gen- there is a gendered aspect to it, but I really see it more in hindsight, knowing that um, men are more likely to take risks and be willing to fail. Um, at 17, when I was applying for colleges, I was not willing to fail. Um, I, I needed to be have a very solid certainty of what I was going to do and putting myself out there, the possibility of that kind of failure, um, was not something that I, that I could contemplate. You, you are not alone. Mm-hmm. I think that is my experience and others experience as well. And I, and I'll just say, I, for me, part of wanting to do this podcast is to shed light on what could seem to be very innocuous decisions and really have a, a different lens on what was really motivating that? You know, why did I really decide to do this or not do this? So I appreciate you mm-hmm. sharing that. I think that it's hard also to, to think about the opportunities I didn't take and the risks I didn't take. Um, for example, coming back from Peace Corps, I was making decisions about where I wanted to live and I could go anywhere in the United States. I was not particular tied to anywhere. Um, but I, I made a decision to come to the Washington DC area because I knew that I could stay with my aunt and uncle for a couple months. Whereas in my heart, I kind of was interested in San Francisco or New York, but I didn't have that kind of safety net. And I, I wonder if that, you know, I, I don't think of that so much as a risk I didn't take because I, because I settled where I am and I'm happy where I am. Um, but that was an opportunity that I, that I was a hard decision to make. And part of the reason I made the decision I did is because I knew it would be safe. Mm-hmm. Did you ever have a time in your life where gender norms or gender expectations told you, stop, don't do this, but you decided to push on anyway? I think the best example might be while I was in West Africa. 
and I was working with women in, um, on their apprenticeships and I was working with teachers at the local school and the, the mounting, um, pressure to marry someone locally. I, I even had a man show up at my house and walk right in my door, um, and say, I'm going to buy you a television and I'm going to set up electricity here. And, um, in exchange for being his mistress, presumably, um, and there were so many op- so many places where because i was a woman i was i felt vulnerable and at risk and um scared and disempowered and i kept i stayed there i kept meeting with my counterparts i kept building relationships and focusing on work and not on any um on the the flirting that was happening i'd just turn it right back to work and it was really tough it was really hard to get on another bush taxi and wake up with um some guy's hand on my on my breast and say okay well i'm just gonna push it off and keep going for another eight hours in this taxi till i get where i'm going um and just keep moving forward and continue on to work on these programs that were so important to me, these programs that got girls scholarships so they could continue school, these programs that, that brought youth leaders together to talk about the importance of equity between boys and girls, especially in school and in the home. Um, I was able to pull myself together and, and give myself um, a space in order to be resilient in the face of um, continual and frustrating harassment. If there was one thing, let me say it a little bit differently, if there was one thing that you would recommend to people living in the United States, an action that they could take, big or small, to support change around issues of gender in this country, what would that be? That's hard to pick just one. Or no, you can, hey, you, you can but, say as many as uh-huh. you want. This is a, an open-ended question. I think the first one I would say is that that concept of building your vocabulary to increase understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some resistance to using, using some of these new terms Um, people find them silly or frustrating or politically correct, just try them out. Uh, Like understand what the book definition is. Try to think of an example of that, of someone who fits that identity or that value. doesn't mean you have to totally agree with it. Just allow that word to be absorbed into your, your vocabulary. And then second, I'd love for men and women to look at how men are restricted in the ways in, in this, in the United States by gender roles. Like I, I offered experiences from a woman's perspective, but there were also, um, from the, my male friends, I know that there are, there are the expectation that they must be the breadwinner, that they must not show emotion that they have to be um, hyper-masculine and strong and 
fit. And these, all of these gendered norms around masculinity are just as pervasive and just as toxic as the, um, as the norms around femininity and women. Um, and so the idea that gender is only about women, um, I think we can just blow that out of the water. Everybody will do better if we think about what gender means for us. I agree. And eventually, I am planning to have men on the podcast as mm. well. This this is not only women. I said gay men, straight men, they are all welcome. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Nope. Okay, then my last question is truly, truly an open-ended question. Is there anything that you would want to say that I didn't ask or that didn't come up in the conversation so far around gender that you think is really important you'd like to put out there? The thing that has come to my mind um, with that question is a comment I saw on on Facebook the other day um, where someone I know um, saw an article that in New York you no longer have to um, name the sex of your baby on their birth certificate. And the comment was, that's child abuse. And I just, I think that that's, a, that's so troubling that people think that identifying sex and gender from the moment of, uh, from before birth is something that is so incredibly intrinsic that it is child abuse to not identify gender and sex in a cis, um, cis way. I was, I, I don't know that the, um, I found that very troubling and something that I am interested in exploring. Um, and it makes me wonder what people are so fearful of the, to equate just simply not choose, not choosing the gender for your child until they manifest it with child abuse really, you know, well, it brought me to tears, I have to say. I, I realize we've used the term cis, a co- myself mm. included, a couple of times during this conversation, and we haven't defined it. And mm-hmm. I don't think I've defined it yet with anybody else I've spoken to. Can you please define it? Yeah, the easiest definition is um, a cisgendered person is a person who identifies with the gender that matches the sex they were assigned at birth. So if you are born and the sex you are assigned is female because you show the external organs of, that are typically considered female, and then later in life you identify with your, your gender as female, then you are a cisgendered person. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Rose, it has been a pleasure. I really appreciate you coming over and thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Amy. You've been listening to Your Own Voice, the podcast about gender experience and perspective. I'm your host, Amy Breslow. Your Own Voice is produced by your host with IT assistance from Alex Moreno and is registered with ProtectRight. Thank you for joining us today. I'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. Until then, be well and take care.